And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us today and getting into my favorite part of the show. And, and this is for those of you that are going to email in and saying, wait a second, I thought we were in the middle of a commodity special. We are. But obviously some big things have occurred here. A bit of a bloodbath going on this week when we were talking to you last week and thought that that might be the case. Um, but I think the biggest culprit here and the big, well, I think there's probably a lot of things at play, but I think the, the biggest story, at least in my opinion, um, is a very substantial rate increase by the Fed, which is obviously a break from the norm considering the past 15 years. And in my opinion, um, it is one of, if not the biggest thing that we need to be keeping an eye on is interest rates and, and treasuries and the dollar. And I came across this gentleman's work and he really, first of all, he's got a very accomplished and, and deep background, um, a lot of time in the game. And he looks at those, he looks at the market through that lens. He's really paying attention to the treasury side of it. I've just been introduced to his work, so I don't know a whole lot about it, but I think that this is a great educational opportunity. Uh, so anyway, without further ado, I wanted to introduce uh, Andy Constan, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a bit presumptuous and say a new friend of the show from dampspring.com. And Andy, why don't you just kind of give us the background? Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you started, where you're coming from, uh, what you're currently doing and and your process and how you do things. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So I have about a 36 year career start in June, as of June, um, starting my career with uh, 17 years at Solomon Brothers and it's successor companies. Um, and um, pretty much always spending my time in the trading area in equities, traded convertible bonds, traded equity derivatives, and then took over managing those businesses while still managing trading. Um, and um, then took it global. Um, and sort of built a nice equity derivatives business at uh, what is now Citigroup. Um, and then uh, since then, I um, fi- wanted to one day start my own hedge fund and a couple of friends um, leaving Solomon from their fixed income area had um, just launched or was in the, in the process of launching, hadn't launched fully um, a hedge fund that did RV relative value trading. So I joined them in 2003, we founded the firm and uh, it grew fairly rapidly um, doing our, I was doing RV trading the whole time. Um, in equities, equity risk arb, convertible bond arb, um, and then vol- and volatility trading. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, our partnership wasn't as uh, strong as our performance. And so we split um, at right before 2007. And I launched a firm um, poorly timed, um, <laughs> right as the financial crisis was starting. And we really never got off the ground. So I watched the financial crisis from the sidelines, unfortunately, don't have any good personal stories on that, Um, but ultimately um, saw what happened to RV during that time and realized that the big gap I had in my life and my understanding of markets was macro. And so I um, luckily got a job at Bridgewater Associates. Um, and really learned um, systematic macro from what I think are the best thinkers in the world uh, in terms of how macro markets work. Um, and that lasted a long time for, an, for uh, over three years, which 
is a long tenure for anybody um, that comes from the outside through Bridgewater. And I took that um, and went to uh, Brevin Howard, where I saw another master at macro, um, Alan Howard, um, and his team um, navigate macro markets from 2015 to 2019. Um, and uh, they have a completely different process. They're all about um, discretionary and um, they're not systematic. So it was a fascinating juxtaposition of my experiences. And um, I basically worked as a strategist there um, as um, hoping one day to build, to have my own book, um, which didn't work out because Brevin shrank fairly rapidly during those years. Um, but Alan, thankfully, helped me launch um, Damp Spring Advisors, which is a consultancy for hedge funds, um, principally, um, in which I write um, reports, research reports on global macro um, and um, for my hedge fund clients that are seeking alpha. And that's really my, my business. Um, at the same time, I've become um, interested in sharing my experiences on Twitter and have built um, I started about a little over 15 months ago, really aggressively tweeting about financial markets on Twitter and my following. Um, thankfully, people seem to like my um, what I offer and they've um, responded and I've grown from about 500 um, followers to um, about 35,000. Um, and so that's been a great journey and I've met lots of great people and I interact with great minds that also are sharing their thoughts on Twitter. It's been a great journey. And some of the, my Twitter followers have asked for um, person more, you know, more in depth work. And so I've offered um, access for a different class of uh, investor types uh, to join me at dampspring.com to um, share more ideas in more depth than I could ever do in Twitter. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I, I was introduced to your work, uh, recently and I just, I, I find it very interesting because it, and, and I, and I'm sure you know, this, it's just very rarely in the world that you come across a unique take. Um, meaning the way you look at things from what I've seen so far is unique. It's a different perspective and, and listening to your background now, I can, you know, I, I, I assume that there's a lot of that that is organic from your own mind, but you've really gotten to see <clears throat> really, really all ends of the spectrum, right? At Brevin, at Bridgewater, uh, you got to see some real masters at work. So if you could kind of tell us what your, what your framework is, how you look at markets, what you guys are most concentrated on, because, you know, I kind of felt obviously where there were things that happened, Andy, but as a guy that has always been very much into macro, as much as I believe it plays a role in investing, it's just always been fascinating to me. It's I'm a, I'm a macro nerd, I would say. Um, I would just like to hear you in your words, talk about your framework, talk about how you look at things and then, and then walk us in to uh, you know, what you're seeing now and, 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 you know, just set up that framework and, and how that's leading you to, to, to how you're looking at markets in present day. Yeah, sure. Um, so my framework is um, I don't know if it's unique. Um, my framework is, um, I'll just explain it. Um, I believe macro markets have um, three principal drivers, and that is um, um, growth and changes in expectation and growth, 
inflation, changes in expectations infl in, of inflation, and um, what I loosely call risk premium. And risk premium is, um, for me, um, the um, compensation you get for investing. And so um, when you choose to invest, it really depends on two things, um, how much um, money and credit is chasing how many assets um, and vice versa. When the money and credit is tight and assets are uh, very available, looking to be sold, um, asset prices tend to fall. And when money is easy and credit is available and assets are limited, um, asset prices tend to rise. But the other part of that risk premium framework is also risk. And so um, when um, individual portfolio, so it's all about portfolio risk. It's not just about individual components of the portfolio, but individual components matter. So when expectations for fixed income lately uh, of future volatility are very, very high, um, people don't want to own as much fixed income. They want to de-risk. And of course, every seller has a buyer. So someone who buys knows that these are more risky and so demands a concession in the form of increased risk premium. And um, then, of course, at the portfolio level, it really matters um, not only uh, the volatilities of the components, but the, vol the correlation of those components uh, because portfolios um, are less volatile when they benefit from diversification and more volatile when diversification has no benefit. And lately, um, diversification has been um, um, poor. Assets have fallen as one. Mm -hmm. Correlations and the, the, some traditional correlations have essentially broken down. So that's an important reason why you've seen such... Uh, expansion and risk premiums. Um, but um, how it applies to markets right now, I guess I'd um, say that uh, in the financial crisis to a lesser extent, but also meaningfully, and in the, um, sorry, um, and in the, um, uh, since COVID, um, the amount of fiscal spending that's money handed by the government borrowed from someone and handed to spenders um, has been enormous and at the same time um, the borrowing has been facilitated by the fed buying um, and that really dominated macro since the bottom in in um, um, march of uh, 2020 um, and continues to dominate, but things have reversed. Um, and that is that um, in, um, um, late, in, in late 2021, the Fed began to reduce the speed of its purchases, uh, which was still an easing, but less so. And then I noticed on December 15th at the Fed press conference, um, Jay Powell slipped in a very small point that they were now looking at the balance sheet. And that was really when the drumbeats of QT began, which is what I titled my report on December 29th. Um, and those drumbeats had a very clear impact to me. 
which is that there were going, as we approached and then began QT, there were going to be one fewer buyer in the market for the securities the Treasury needed to issue, um, both to refinance its debt and to fund um, its um, continued budget deficit. Um, and that had an implication to um, all financial assets globally in that there were just going to be more U.S. dollar assets available. Um, and so the front running began on January 4th. I, I suggested that the market was going to you know, fall 10% at least on the S&P and go well through 2%. I think rates were at 170 at that point well through 2% in the front running process, and then we'd see the details. Um, and so that front running really began on January 4th when the market woke up to what I had pointed out um, in the minutes. And we've basically been operating in that regime ever since. And so now we're at QT, um, and the details now really, really matter. And so one of the things that I've been talking about in my most recent reports are those specific details. And my most recent report, which is up on my website, is called Who Will Sell Bonds? Um, because we know already, and we've known for a while, with the fair, I, I predicted 50, then going to 100 in terms of quantitative tightening, the amount that the Fed would reduce its balance sheet per, mu per month. It turned out to be 47 and a half and 95. I predicted that in um, in January 24th. I predicted that and it was a pretty close. Um, and starting in June, which which uh, frankly, I'm a little surprised they are waiting till then. But um, starting in June, which was my prediction. So I think I got that part right. But the big deal um, is that the Treasury is actually the one that determines the impact of QT. Okay, you got to walk you you got to walk me through that one. Yeah, that's the that's the complicated one. And the reason why that is is because um, the the Fed doesn't isn't planning to there's a little question about mortgages but we'll ignore that for the moment. Isn't planning to sell bonds into the market. It's planning on letting maturities of existing bonds reduce its balance sheet, which means instead of to date, they still um, reinvest proceeds um, that they get from maturing bonds into the marketplace to keep their balance sheet static. They're going to choose to not do that. And they're going to take the cash and essentially burn it um, instead of buying bonds. Now, so that's what the Treasury's doing. I mean, the Fred's doing. So you just think of them as an investor who said, okay, I'm not buying anymore. Um, and they're not buying $47.5 billion in June. Um, but the Treasury is still selling. So it's the seller that determines the impact. Mm. And what I mean by impact is about liquidity and the necessary con con concession one has to give to buy a certain security. And what I mean by that is the amount of concession or risk premium that one would expect to get on a two-year bond per dollar of issuance 
is dramatically less than the, and thus the impact on global financial markets is less than if they, if the treasury were to issue 30 year bonds, where the concession would be very significant. Finding a new buyer for 30 years might mean a seller of 30 year corporates. And that seller might need to, that the buyer of those corporates might need to sell some equities. And that whole thing cascades while the buyer of two years, you know, there's just tremendous depth in that market. Mm. Um, and so shouldn't cascade through the financial markets. And so Janet Yellen has the lever to determine the impact of QT by choosing how much of each security they issue. Okay. So, so, it, it, well, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, the, the, the thing I've got, I'm sure you're watching this. When we look at deficits going in, how many, how in general, what is the gross number of, of, of bonds that the Fez, the treasury needs? And I, obviously we're not going to be able to pinpoint it, but what do you think total issuance is going to be this year? Right. That's an interesting question. Um, and it talks, there's a couple of moving parts. Firstly, sometimes they issue and don't spend. And what happens in that case is their bank account at the Fed, which is called the Treasury General account, rises. Meaning, literally, they issue, they borrow money, and they put it in the bank. Mm. Um, and there's no, and that is just pre-borrowing for later spending. Other times, for instance, they may borrow very little and spend down their savings account, just like anyone else would for to handle their spending. And so the first quarter, Q1, the borrowing, um, so there's two types of borrowing. There's new money, which is funds ex the deficit, and there's existing debt, which gets refinanced, um, meaning existing debt gets, is, um, matures, and they need money to pay for that maturity, so they issue a spectrum of debt. Um, and those, the new money amount was about $750 billion in Q1. Um, and the roll amount was, I don't remember the exact figure, but call it about the same. And let's just assume that the roll amount stays about the same. The new money is the important part because just as the treasury wants to roll um, its debt, the people who get maturing debt, government debt tend to want to reinvest it. So they tend to be the natural buyer. So it's the new money that matters. Um, and so the new money was about 750 billion and 650 billion of that went to increasing the treasury general account. So it was pre-saved and so that's just what happened in Q1. In Q2, the new money amount actually, based on uh, Monday's quarterly refunding announcement, is actually going to be negative, meaning we aren't borrowing any money to finance our deficit. In fact, we're, we're borrowing less. We're, 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 we're actually paying off some of our existing debt, um, which means very little supply of bonds in um Q2. Now, Andy, Andy, let me jump in here for a second. <clears throat> it, could I, would it be fair for me to sit back and interpret that as the treasury trying to take some of the sting 
out of uh, the rate increases and, and, and an effort to not let the bond market get too disorderly? Right. So that's the lever. And there's politics associated with sure. that. Um, by avoiding um, the impact of quantitative tightening, they are naturally um, defeating one of the levers of the um, the Fed is using to fight inflation, which has, you know, that's a negative pol- political stance to take, I would think. Um, nonetheless, the Treasury, unlike the Fed, cares about getting reelected and um, probably doesn't want a global financial crisis to be happening at the midterms. Maybe they do. Maybe, you know, Janet's playing and Biden are playing some form of three-dimensional chess, as they like to say, and say it's better chance if we're going to crash the market, let's crash it at the midterms so that we can win by 2024. But again, that's just political stuff. I have no insight on that. But it's a political, it's it's an offsetting and inconsistent goal with the Fed's inflation fighting goal and inconsistent with the Treasury's own stated publicly inflation fighting goal. Um, So that's where the politics and the lever matter. Um, but what's ha- helpful is they told us um, what they're going to do. And uh, what they told us is that they're actually going to issue, um, they're not going to cut coupons as rapidly as um, QT is going to be cut. Sorry, as Fed buying is going to be cut. And when that information came out on Wednesday at 830, um, I thought that was a very significant signal Um that um, Yellen was on the side of inflation fighting versus saving the bond market. And um, then the Fed testimony, then the Fed minutes came out and, sorry, not minutes, um, the statement came out and then um, Powell did his press conference and the market briefly thought of it, I I think it was intended to be um, on the dovish side, um, but taking 75 off the table uh, delaying QT a few weeks versus starting it right away and um, talking about how the financial markets had, you know, already moved to the point where the Fed was, was a way of saying, you know, hey, wait a second, you know, let's not move too fast. We're, 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 we're with you. Um, and the stock market skied on that news only to immediately reverse on Thursday. And um, I guess it's down today a little bit, too. Um aggressively yesterday and i believe that's because janet took the side of the of inflation fighting and not um not the bond market so now let's put on our macro hats unless there's something that that is still about this that this and and you feel free to interrupt me pal i'm fascinated by what you're talking about here and um you know and this is why guys this is why i like to have guys like this on I had never thought about or heard anybody articulate the role that the Treasury can play in it. Um, so, hey, you learn something new every day, man. So, um, <laughs> so what what does this mean then? It 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 it, and, and this was the kind of the read that I had. But listening to you, it really backs up my thought that they are really taking this inflation thing seriously, right? Right. I mean, I think that's I think that's clear. Okay, so what now, where do we, putting on our macro hats, 
How yep. do you how do you see how is this going to affect? Uh, and obviously, we're just spitballing here. But how do you think this impacts equity markets and 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 the economy in general? We had negative one point four GDP print in the first quarter. Um, where what is what are you looking at in terms of? And I, I I'm sure you probably agree with me, but I hate the term recession because you know it, it's it's such a sloppy word, right? Um, hey, uh, listen, if if we if the GDP that printed lasts and we have another negative print in um, in um, Q2, the NBER is going to call it a recession. Right. Talk about whatever it is. That's what it, that's what it'll be called. Right. That's not my predict. That's not my outlook. But okay. So so that would, it would be what it would be. So your outlook is that that this. Do you think inflation is? So you don't think that we're going to be looking at that? Do you think inflation is going to just pound through these measures? Do you think the do you think that this isn't enough of a full flaps move, if you will, by the the Treasury and the and the Fed to slow things down? What is your outlook on U.S. markets, and then and then you know uh, a, a broader outlook on how this will impact global markets? Right. Um, so we don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, Anybody who thinks they understand this needs some humility. Amen. Um, I think there are. Um, so let's talk about what just happened. What just happened is we had a eight percent annual year-over-year inflation in March, um, and a negative um, one point four percent GDP print. Um, that sounds like stagflation to me. <laughs> and there's certainly a loud set of people out there that believe that is the outlook for um, the U.S. and the global markets, for that matter. Um, And um, so anyway, that's what happened. So you can't argue with that. It happened. Um, Will it persist is the thing you have to ask. Um, And I would say... um, So I would say there are... Uh, I would be, um, I would think both are moving away from that position. Both growth will be better than that, and inflation will be better than, lower than that. Um, and so I think we will see that period as the stagflation time for the time being. Um, meaning, uh, again, we don't know. And, um, the Fed, in my view, is doing what the Fed should do. Um, again, there's loud audiences that believe the Fed has no credibility, um, zero negative credibility, and there's some that think they have okay credibility. Nobody gives them star marks. Um, but ignoring that, ignoring that debate, they're doing what they should. They're doing the best they can. They can't predict the incoming data. They've shown they can't, and they say they can't. Not only have they shown they can't, but they tell you they can't. And so I think they're doing the right thing to um, move. Um, um, what's the new word? Um, expeditiously mm-hmm. to uh, tighten financial conditions. Um, and the market has moved to tighten financial conditions. And um, um, and that, that applies to equities being down, credit spreads being wider. Uh, short rates being up, um, term premiums being wider on bonds. All those things are happening. Um, and yet 
employment. We put 428,000 people to work last quarter, uh, last month, and um, wages disappointed a little bit. But, you know, the economy to me at a basic level is very strong. And we had an inventory build, and then we had COVID, um, Omicron in the first two, two months of last quarter. I'm more optimistic. Um, GDP now printed 2.2%, I think, for Q2 in its first estimate, which is usually wildly wrong, but that's a, the only benchmark we have. Um, and so I could imagine a sort of 2%, 6% inflation um, nominal growth of 8% um, when we look back at the next quarter, um, which is a fairly strong healthy economy. Um, but I have some concerns on the inflation front. Um, I don't see, so what I don't see happening is the, is, which is what I think the, uh, you have to believe if you are a um, stagflation person, that the Fed will both cause a recession and fail to curb inflation. I think that's an unlikely outcome, but that's what you would have to believe to believe stagflation has occurred. Now they could do one or the other. I believe it's very likely that they could kill inflation and the economy. And I think it's very likely that they could fail to kill the inflation and the economy keeps roaring. Um, but I don't see the I don't see the combination of killing the economy and not killing inflation. And that may be a blind spot for me, but and certainly last quarter was stagflation. So, you know, um, I could see why somebody would extrapolate that. I just can't. Um, but I do think there is one this this idea that um, it'll take some time. You know, what's priced into um, inflation expectations is dropping the two and a half by five years from now. Um, and, um, you know, starting here and dropping fairly rapidly to two and a half percent. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Um, and I think, um, you know, economic growth will eventually come back to slightly below trend for the foreseeable future. So if you ask me five years from now, where we'll be, I would think we'll have both below trend inflation and below trend, um, growth. Um, but that's five years from now and that doesn't help you trade markets at all. Yeah. I, so let me, one of the things, <clears throat> and I've, I've started referring to these loosely as, is what I call the five horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and I will just tell you right now, I, I really, you know, I'll just put my, my thoughts out there over the next shoot few months, short term. Um, I just, it looks very ugly to me in terms of equity markets, um, and yeah. I want to run this by you because I want to hear your thoughts on it. I kind of started referring to uh, these five factors as the five horsemen of the apocalypse, admittedly hyperbolic. Okay, I just thought it sounded catchy. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking at a situation, and I've never, you know, I, I've been in this job, uh, I've been, been in the business since 2005. So I'm not new to it, uh, been through some wars, but, but not nearly as many as you. And uh, so as always, I want you feel, to feel free to disagree and tell me where I'm wrong. That's what I'm interested in hearing. You know, it's the old adage. I don't need you to reinforce what, I, what I'm right about, right? I want, I want to figure out where I'm wrong. That's, that's, it's I'm the, with you. It's the bullet you don't see, right, pal? 
Um, yep. So anyway, five horsemen I'm looking at. DXY and oil both above 100. Uh, looking at economic weakness in the fourth quarter, like you said, it may very well recover, but I'm looking at it, 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 those two factors combined with economic weakness, especially in the fourth quarter. I'm looking at rate moves that are uh, very drastic, right? Um, I mean, maybe we've seen harder moves, but I mean, the yield on the 10 year has doubled in the last 14 months, right? Is that about right? We about doubled on the 10 year about 14 months? Uh, more than that. You know, okay, think, yeah. Um, I think we were below one and a half at one point yeah. in that 14 month period. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at uh, oh, blanking out here, DXY oil, economic weakness, uh, looking at rates, uh, looking at uh, shoot. What am I, what am I, uh, I'm forgetting some of my horsemen here, but looking at this global picture, um, you know, looking at the, the, the impact that the dollar's got, the impact that, that, that higher oil's got, right? And, and I've, kind yep. of, I've kind of called that essentially like a, almost like a 20% tax on the rest of the world. And I don't know if that number's accurate, but, but you know, somewhere yeah, sure. in there. Um, I, when I look around the world today, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a market from my estimation that has less catalysts to the upside when looking at those, 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 those macro pieces of information. Um, to, to that, what do you say? And where am I wrong uh, when, I'm, when I'm looking at that with kind of a negative macro outlook? Um, I'm not sure you are. Um, I'm also not sure how much of that outlook is priced in. Yeah. Um, so there's a question about that. Um, and so I come back to sort of basic um, triggers, which is uh, I look at 30-year bonds, um, which are uh, the 10-year bond is you know, yielding three, ten-ish, and um, has a fair, you know, 25 basis point real um, um, interest rate and about 285 basis points of of, um, of inflation expectations. Um, that decompose that. And I look at five-year inflation five years from now, um, which is a benchmark that a lot of the Fed people look at, um, and that's around 230, 240. And I say, does that make sense to me for inflation expectations, which is 285 over the whole 10 years, most of it front-loaded into the first five years? And then, yeah, that makes sense to me. So I look at bond, and then I look at bond yields at 25 basis points of real, positive real rates and say, does that make sense to me? And I would say broadly, yes. Um, but I do see the headwinds that um, you mentioned. And the head, headwinds, head, headwinds are both the market obser observable things like what you said on oil prices, what you said about the dollar in terms of U.S. Um, US uh, um, um, competitiveness and think that, um, yeah, there's some fairly expensive things that are sort of fairly clear market signs that um, demand destruction is going to occur, while at the same time, I know the Fed's trying to cut demand demand as well in fighting inflation. And so you have to think that real rates at 25 basis points, sure, they have some upside, but they also may have some downside. And 
Um, it really depends on your outlook in terms of inflation expectations. In my view, we're sort of in no man's land in terms of mm. bonds. Um, I bought some recently, yesterday actually, a um, little early. I bought um, some the day before, pal, so you're not alone. Right, right. Um, but, um, you know, that's more for a shorter term outlook. Right. Um, but longer term outlook, do I think that the things you mentioned are going to affect uh, growth? Yeah. They're supposed to. Right, right, right. Okay, That's so- the intent. The real question I have, and I'll come back to, I'll come back to the, the things that you mentioned, which is oils, oil is not only about Ukraine, and it's not only about, um, um, you know, this sudden, this reopening demand. Um, and it's not only about, you know, the, you know, easy money in the system. Um it's about ESG as well. And um, we're finding the ESG trend um, over the last five or six years has really reduced the ability to pump and transport oil. And so I don't think that's going to change in the near term. Um, and for very good reason, if, if you really do, if you're on the ESG um, good for the planet side of the equation, which I am, but that's irrelevant. Um, higher oil prices means more um, push to sustainable energy, which great. Um, that's what they want. Um, on the other side, you know, this is not where we are today. And so we have serious problems and the infrastructure isn't getting built. And so that should sustain oil prices for, you know, the foreseeable future, even after Ukraine gets solved, if it ever does. Um, and then at the same time, everyone who wants renewable energy needs of the commodities to store and transport electricity. And that creates a bid for copper, aluminum, and other um, base commodities used for um, for um, sustainable energy. And so I don't think, I think those are secular. I don't think those are, uh, and so, which co- brings me back to one other thing. Well, and Andy, um, I wonder, I, let me interject for one second because I think you hit yeah. on something really important. And, and in my opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing you say the same thing. <clears throat> I've been telling our clients and, and our listeners on the show that, yeah, there's inflation, guys, but the inflation isn't why oil's at 110. I don't, I don't, would you agree with that? I don't think that that's an inflationary impact. I mean, per um, se, right? It's playing well, a role. Well, I mean, but... I, think it has a lot, I think it has a lot to do with Ukraine. Right. Um, so I think there's, you can't, you can't ignore what's happening to energy. Um, and I think there has been, you know, significant demand, um, improvements. So I don't know. It's certainly not only inflation, I guess I'd, I'd restate it and say it's certainly partly because of inflation, but it's also not only because of inflation. Right. Um, just like, just like, um, chicken prices are partly due to inflation and partly due to bird flu. Right. Right. Egg, okay. Egg, pri- egg prices in particular, which are skyrocketing. Um, <laughs> that, well, and that's, what's so, fascinating to me, Andy, I, what's, what's interesting to me, and it is kind of an aside, but it, it is, it is really interesting to me how quick that corner turned. I, you know, I'm looking at the last 15 years and the battle was really that kind of wet blanket deal, right? It was, it was that constant threat of, 
uh, of deflation and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't really achieve escape velocity really on a GDP basis. I mean, we had some decent prints there for a couple of years, but nothing, you know, nothing that really achieved that escape velocity per se. And then all of a sudden you come out of COVID and it's like somebody flipped a light, right? It's like, right. So what do you think that was? I, I have a view. Um, I think the view is that, um, my view is that, uh, since the financial crisis, Every Fed member that I've ever heard, I guess it was really Bernanke and um, Yellen, have asked Congress to have them do that. They're doing their part. The Fed is doing its part to help the economy grow um, and to promote stable prices, not deflation. Um, But they've asked the, um, the Congress to help do their part. We found out what doing their part actually was. It was spending six trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll that'll while, leave a mark. While the Fed did its part in buying the bonds that were used to finance that spending, and so yeah, we're getting what we're getting inflation. You can do that. You know the the whole concept, and Japan is just doesn't get it yet. One day they will. Um, the whole plan of Abe's three arrows in 2015 was to do structural reform, which is, you know, that's just always a good thing. And both buy bonds, stocks in the JG, um, BOJ's case, and have a significant fiscal stimulus. Um, they ended up, three arrows wasn't enough. They needed three missiles. Um, and so they didn't get the desired result, but we threw, you know, I don't know what the next thing up is, but, um, we threw massive fiscal spending, um, into the mix and it's had the desired outcome. We fuel air, we fuel air bombed it. It was a fuel air bomb, right? (laughs) Went from arrows to missiles to fuel air bombs. Yep. And so we're getting the desired outcome of that. Um, and now the only question is, can we, um, you know, bring it back in without crashing everything? And it's going to be very, very difficult. Mm. Okay. So w- w- the other, the other, one of the other five horsemen, the other two, I remembered, of course, while we were sitting here talking about, uh, it was just that the Fed had left the party. Um, again, the way I put it, it was the guy that's been pouring the drinks for the last 15 years, just left the party and a yep. 40 uh, year high prints in inflation. But I, I really want to focus in on the Fed. And I will, and the reason why is I want to hear your take on it. And I will admit that I have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to the Fed. Uh, And again, it's the bullet you don't see. I have been very critical of the Fed. Uh, For years, I've been saying that I thought they were going to paint themselves into a corner. And um, to me, it seems that that's where they're currently are. But I also, but I also am very afraid of confirmation bias. You and I both know, especially you, the firms you've worked at, um, uh, your philosophy might sound great, but if it doesn't result in performance, <laughs> right, it doesn't matter. So how big of an impact, Andy, do you see, uh, the feds pivot having, and, and, and do you think guys like me that have been hypercritical of the fed, do you think that our fears and concerns are warranted that, that because they're no longer pouring the drinks, the party has to end, or do you think that that's a bit short-sighted and a little too simplistic? Hmm. Well, Um, I think about the being the player on the field analogy. 
Teddy Roosevelt, maybe? I don't know. Um, um, the player in the arena. The man in the arena. Yeah, it was was Teddy Roosevelt, yep. Yeah. And I would say um, uh, those who um, are critical of the Fed, um, I would say that, and I haven't heard a, um, I've heard lots of, you know, I would do this. Um, But what would you have them do? This is a this is a really good point, because especially in the last year, again, really trying to get outside of the hyperbole and really understand things. I sat there and I thought, okay, if I'm the head of the Fed, what would I do now? I would love to play the, you know, the revisionist history part and say, well, I never would have got us into this mess in the first place. Okay, but that's beside the point, because you look at a guy like Jay Powell and. It, you know, somebody's got to play that role. He didn't have any right, part. I, but by the way, but by the way, again, pick a point. Pick a point at any point in time and say, what would you have had? What would you have done? Don't say that, yeah, what he did was a mistake. Mm-hmm. That's easy. Yeah. Just sit there at on March 20th um, and tell me what you would have done with of 2020 with a potentially we didn't have a vaccine we didn't even know what the thing was or we were we were still wiping our groceries when it turns out that you can't get it that way no and 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 i just tell me what you would what how you would have done differently so you say you wouldn't have gotten into that position it's possible you wouldn't have but well, and I was and I and I was referring to a longer timeline. So going, you know, going back, but, sure. But 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 I actually agree with you, and I've taken some flack on this because I sat there and said, when you shut down an economy like that, in my opinion, now I personally believe that um, what they did in regards to now again they didn't do it, and and this could be another uh, thing that I could ask for your opinion on. Um, the one thing I wouldn't have done is what they did with corporate bonds, um, but at the same That's- time. What's I hear that? you so tiny, so it, non-impactful, but I hear you. I hear oh, you. I wouldn't have done it either. Okay. Okay. And then, and then, but I look at it and I go, when you, when the government took the actions that they did, and I mean, they just turned the economy off like a switch. Um, you know, people criticize PPP and they criticize all the, and I go, guys, I don't really see that as a bailout. I kind of see like that as the government and the fed paying damages to these people. I don't think that they had a choice. Yeah. All that happened was, um, the fed and the government funded the lost, um, incomes of the world during (laughs) a period in which you couldn't have an income. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but uh, getting to the larger point, how we got down this road, I've often thought about it and said, if you, I've been hypercritical, but what would you, you know, there's a people out there that said, Oh, you know, going back to 0809, they should have let the banks collapse. And I look at them and I go, guys, you don't know what you're saying. Okay. And I, and I, and I say that with humility and not saying that I'm the guy that knows everything, but had you let the banks collapsed, we would have been another depression. Potentially even worse, right? Um, we don't know, but it certainly would have been um, unmanaged chaos. Right, right. So, so what do you think? Do you, so, going to a and large... that's the point I'm saying, which you can you can come to that 
as long as you're willing to say there would have been unmanaged chaos, wars, um, rioting in the street, whatever, whatever it is, and you're willing to say um, the government response, the societal response is something you're willing to accept, that's great. Um, but you have to be able to say that. And I, don't, I think people think that they could have done a better job and got the same outcome. And I just, I, I don't see, particularly in the example you got, gave, I don't see that that would have been the outcome. Right, right. So, so how big of how big of a shift to this, and how big of an impact do you see it having to the overall economy? That such a sea change has occurred to the Fed, and how critical do you think that their involvement? What, what I'm sitting there looking at goes: we we have had essentially, and and again, I, I don't mean this in the pejorative sense. I'm just trying to state it for what it is. Um, we have had an incredibly accommodative and assisting Fed for the better part of the last 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. When that turns, like it has, um, how big of an impact, I mean, we're all kind of trying to weigh that at this moment, right? How big of an impact do you think it has in this environment where you still do have so many corporations that have substantially and historically high debt levels and debt loads? How big of an impact do you think this pivot by the Fed, and I think it's absolutely warranted, I support the, the moves they've made, I think sure. that I think that the amounts that they've raised have actually made some sense. Um, how big of an impact do you think this has? I mean, what kind of what, what, what so do you the see? question? The question you are asking, I think, is I, I want to break down to how big an impact will it have on the real economy, and then yeah. how big it'll have big an impact it'll have on the markets. And um, what I would say it's very clear is that it already has had a big impact on the markets. Yeah. Well, is it big? Is it big enough? Is it going to be more impactful than what has already been discounted? That's a different question. But without question, December fifteenth was a game changer. I wrote about it December 29th. and on January fourth, everyone saw. Everyone started reacting and front running. This pivot has been discounted in a significant way. By financial markets. That said, it's, it wasn't intended to, nor was it able to have a significant impact on the real economy until the financial markets had their had an impact. And then after that, um, it's just making sure they carry through. And what I mean by that is, two-year rates are three percent already. So the tightening, whether they've, you know, they've only done 75 basis points, the tightening's already affecting um, borrowing costs for, you know, mortgages are five and a half plus now. Um, All of the tightening has been done by the market. Um, And so it's now beginning and it's, it's, you know, we started seeing this in January and it's, you know, early May. Um, It's now starting to transmit into the real economy and, um, you know, I basically look at it this way. Um, the Fed has told us what they're going to do. Jay might have taken um, the really hawkish 50 basis points for the next six months, um, you know, the next six, five meetings off the table. Um, he's certainly left 50 on for the next two, month, two meetings, locked him in, in my opinion. Um, but for whatever reason, he decided to do that. The feds basically told us where they are and, you know, 
two after the next two meetings, they'll be data dependent going into September. And I don't know. I don't know whether, you know, we'll see resolution in the war, whether supply chains will open up, whether higher oil prices will cut demand for other goods. Um, each of those things may tame inflation a little bit. And um, we don't know what will be a problem. There's a there's a problem, I think, that is worth paying attention to. One is wages are increasing and labor is very, very tight. Um, and to the extent demand doesn't get demand destruction doesn't occur, which it won't partly because employment is so good and wages are going up. Right. That creates demand. Um, you could see inflation be more persistent. Um, and the other thing is um, there's a political will, um, I think bipartisan political will, given the experiences of the last two years, to um, build um, duplicate supply chains, whether that's energy production infrastructure or um, domestic higher cost production, um, um, that is a, there's a political will to sort of say, hey, we can't really depend on Taiwan for our semiconductors, so we're going to give Intel and its cohort $100 billion. Um, that spending, an increase in, so for, for one thing, a duplicate supply chain is extraordinarily expensive for the global economy. It's, it's essentially having belts and suspenders. We've operated with belts and our pants fell down, and so now we're going to do belts and suspenders forever. That's going to be extremely inefficient for an economy. Reduce productivity of the global economy because you'll have redundant supply chains operating in parallel. Um, but the spending to build those things would be highly inflationary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. I just look at everything and it points to, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not talking about Weimar Republic or hyperinflation It's just, it, it is, it is incredible to me how everything, you know, pre COVID was deflationary and now everything's flipping something why I've got you here that I wanted to ask you about. And, um, uh, I've, I've thought about this for a while. And I do not understand this, the, the mechanism and the process of treasury issuance uh, and, and the relationship between the treasury and the Fed nearly as well as you do. But I want, to, I want to float kind of a harebrained idea I had about you. And then I can't remember, I think it was about two and a half, uh, three and a half, maybe four years ago, where Powell actually mentioned this. And I don't know if it was job owning or whatever it was. But one of the things I thought about is that if the Fed is raising rates, and let's say the quote-unquote bond market gets unorderly or disorderly, and um, they lose control. Now, I'm not saying that's possible. Could you see a scenario in which the Fed continued to hike rates but flip from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing? And then if so, what would that look like? Why could they do it? Why can't they do it? I just – I. Right. Where I, I was fascinated to ask you this question because I don't know enough to know this, and, and it was just a harebrained right. idea I had. What is your take on that? So you're talking about some sort of yield curve control. Yeah. Um, which is, um, for some reason, um, the yield curve gets 
presumably very, very steep. Um, and there's some, for some reason, um, there's no, uh, meaning the bonds, long-term bonds crash. Um, and for some reason, there's just no uh, natural market force to um, take advantage of that steepening. So banks regularly like to take advantage of that steepening. Um, and so they might lever up in such a case. But let's just say, for instance, banks, for whatever reason, are not um, able or willing to buy long-term bonds. Right now, they're very able and willing because they have you know, great capital. I guess there's some scenario where, um, so let's step back for a second. So yeah, I don't believe yield cur curve control works. I don't think the Fed believes it works. Um, and um, I could go into that, but I don't think that's um, that useful for your listeners. But to answer more directly what you were talking about, which is um, um, if yield curve control is to deal with a um, too steep yield curve, um, the question is, um, the only way to deal with that would be to buy bonds like Japan does. And I guess the, the question I would have for you is, why would you? Um, why, why is it that a steep yield curve is something that we um, don't want? Well, wouldn't it be, I mean, I, I, the way I thought about it was the impact it could have on corporate balance sheets, right? I mean, you look at some of these things packing just mountains of debt. I mean, what, if, if they've got to, if they've got to roll that, it, you know, let's say even a 250 basis point increase compared to what they're currently at. I mean, wouldn't that have a really nasty impact on the overall economic picture? Um, sure. It, it could. Sure. Um, the, um, so, um, higher interest rates for good reasons are not bad for companies. Right. Meaning if you have a strong economy and contained inflation, and that happens to drive 30 year rates to 6%, um, that's because owning machines that make stuff pays a lot of money, right? It pays off in earnings. Um, and so there's a bit of a, <clears throat> there's a bit of a, um, I think a, a false narrative about higher rates being bad because all of a sudden these cor these corporations that have been living off of zero interest rates are going to have to pay higher interest rates. That's not the point. If they can pay, the reason why they're paying higher interest rates is because the economy is better than it was when interest rates were zero. Right. And so they can, they essentially can't afford it. Now it could be a messy thing. Don't get me wrong. And corporations don't think that way. They, they, they think, gosh, you know, higher rates, higher absolute coupon is going to be worse for us. And they don't acknowledge that, but on the asset side of their balance sheet, um, higher rates, you know, higher returns on assets are also available. Um, so I don't want to be, uh, it's pretty theoretical, but I don't want to overly, but the point being, whatever, for whatever reason, we have a positive yield curve. If it were the case that financial accommodation 
needed to happen because all those things you described were happening. They would do it. They would um, first, they would lower interest rates. Um, the things you're describing are um, unlikely to happen in a positively sloped yield curve environment um, because they can also roll short-term funding. Um, but I, I, so I just can't get there that a um, positively sloped, you know, a, a crash in 30-year bonds would somehow hurt the real economy um, in a way that would um, not respond to easing, meaning cut it, cutting rate hikes. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. No. So I don't see how I don't see how they do both. Right. Do you think? How would you equate that to to what the what the BOJ recently announced, where they're essentially saying, "I'll buy, we'll buy as many bonds from you as you as you can sell us at twenty five bips." Is it? Would you say? I mean, that's. I mean, maybe a cousin of what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. So Japan. Um, so let's step back for a second and say this: Japan needs to stimulate. Its economy is has incredibly bad secular demographics. It has and it has had that for decades. Mm -hmm. The economy is not performing well, unlike the U.S. economy. And so they need to stimulate. What they need to do is a three missiles. They need to both pay. And this is why one of the reasons why I've been um, until recently short the um, yen. Um, Same. <laughs> they need to do both fiscal and um, so what? What's happening is Kuroda is doing his part and Yoshida isn't. Um, mm -hmm. So that needs to happen. Um, and when it does, there'll be plenty of bonds for sale. The government will be selling them, and you get a strong uh, continued weak yen. Whether it's discounted or not is another matter, but. Yeah, the Japanese economy is still stuck and is not anywhere near what the U.S. economy is experiencing. So in my view is buying bonds, forget yield curve control. They like to use that term. They're just buying bonds. They're doing QE. That's all. And they're yeah. not raising rates. It's, and they're not raising rates. If they could cut rates, they would do that. But they can't. Well, but but. Is I mean that's kind of Japan's an interesting one to me because you're right. I mean, they, they, there's no question about it. I don't know how you look at that economy and say they don't need to be accommodative. They don't try to try to stimulate right down to the demographics. But when you look at the depreciation against the dollar with the yen over the last 12 to 14 months, whatever that timeline's been, and then you look at the fact that they're a net importer of energy and crude is where it. I mean, that's got to be just like a massive wet blanket on that economy, is it not? Yeah. But in the more and they stimulate, doesn't that get worse? Um, so far, they're not experiencing a lot of inflation. Yeah, that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 nothing new, right? Yeah, yeah. Andy, okay, so Andy, I man, this has been illuminating, and I'm really glad that Jimmy brought this up. Uh, I know you're a busy guy. We've kept you for even longer than I promised, but um, no I, problem at all. I, I just really appreciate you coming on and doing this, pal. But see, now you, you've kind of opened a Pandora's box, man. When when crazy stuff happens in rate markets, 
I'm going to be knocking down your door for an update. So I, I hope I hope we haven't made it too painful that we can't get you back on at some point in the near future. Happy to talk. All right, pal. Well, thanks again. And guys, um, a guy that I am following now, and uh, I, I would very much recommend you do the same. Um, Andy Constant, you can find him on Twitter at, at dampspring.com or at, excuse me, at dampspring, D-A-M-P-E-D, spring, S-P-R-I-N-G. And then you can also go to his website, dampspringadvisors.com. Is there any other way that the folks can get in touch with you or follow your work and your thoughts, Andy? Actually, dampspring.com is the better one. Okay. I, have a, uh, I have an old site that's trash. Dampspring.com is the current best in breed. All righty, sir. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us, Andy. And I hope you guys uh, found this as illuminating and information, or excuse me, and, and, and educating as I did. Uh, as always, we've got, we've got a slew of them. And, and little little plug here. Uh, not this next week, but the week after, we're going to be having our first Nobel laureate on the show. We're going to be joined by Professor Robert Schiller. So we're pretty excited about that. Been following his work for a long time. But uh, anyway, Andy, once again, thanks for coming. Have a great weekend, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.